Paul to the Galatian churches, we're going to learn that it is critically important to be straightforward about the truth of the gospel. This passage is about the truth of the gospel. We are a people of the gospel. Straightforward literally means to walk with straight feet, to walk a straight path. It means not to walk outside of that straight path laid out in front of you. If you look up the word straightforward in a Greek dictionary, you will discover that the antonyms, the opposites for that word, are to pervert or to transgress. Walking in a non-straightforward way is a transgression of the gospel. It's a perversion of the gospel. And unfortunately, walking in a straightforward way in accordance with the gospel isn't always easy. It takes effort on our part. It takes application. It takes attention. So let me give you an illustration. Several years ago, What I, what, I'm going to stop. <laughs> and uh, if uh, we have six and seven-year-olds. <laughs> so I, apparently I didn't need to tell you that I don't do this part very often. It's, it's uh, painfully apparent to all of us. So six and seven-year-olds, please come up to the front, and we're going to get you to your class. And I apologize for not being able to interpret sign language uh, quicker than I have. So goodbye, kids. (laughs) You were probably here for the best part of the sermon. (laughs) Thank you. So we were talking about being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. So several years ago, my family uh, gathered with a bunch of other families in North Georgia, a place near Vogel State Park. So it's up in the mountains. And we're going to go, we were going to go hiking. And the hike we chose to do was called the Bear Hair Gap Trail. And so this, I think, was going to be a hike with the dads and all the kids. Fun for us. Give the moms a little break down at the uh, campsite. And we're hiking. And one of the people with us, he was, he's a forester. That was his, his job down in Florida. He's with us hiking. And he's pointing out that this is a marked trail. And so the U.S. Forest Service uh, maintains the trail so you can kind of see it through the woods sometimes. And they also put marks on trees, and I think they put these little kind of green flashes of paint. So if you're walking along and you don't think, you know, you're in the right place, you can look up, and eventually you find that little green uh, flash of paint. And this trail crossed some other trails, and sometimes it even crossed Forest Service roads. And so we're hiking, and we're on this broad part of the trail, and we just sort of keep walking. And pretty soon, we're just having a good time. We're talking, not paying that close of attention. And one of the kids says, well, where's the, where's the green paint? And we look around, and, and nobody sees any. And we go up ahead. We don't find any. We go back, and pretty soon, we had to go pretty far back to find where our trail left this sort of forest service road and kind of went off the path. And it was, had kind of a narrow opening into the woods, and it was a narrow trail. I mean, you can see it if you're paying attention and if you knew what you were looking for. But if you just sort of went along with the way your feet kind of wanted to take you, you were not going to be on the right path. And I think you could probably see where I'm starting to go with this. The trail's marked, but it takes a little bit of attention. If we just go where you naturally want to go, you are going to be in the wrong place. C.S. Lewis in the Screw Tape Letters said, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, 
without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So we're looking at a short passage, but it plays a pivotal role in this letter. So what happened to occasion this letter? What's the context of the letter? And so apparently a group of men came to the Galatian churches, and they taught that the Jews have always been God's people. God gave them the law, including circumcision, to set them apart as God's people, and obedience to God's law was necessary for salvation. We can imagine the Galatians saying something like, uh, that's not what I was taught. And then the, these people, these Judaizers, would, would respond, well, who taught you then? And they would say, it was Paul. And so at that point, they would apparently attack Paul's credibility. And it probably sent, went something like this. We, we learned from Peter in Jerusalem. And Peter, he learned from Christ himself And you know, back in Jerusalem, the church is made up of people who have kept the law from birth, and they continue to keep the law to this day. Peter and the other apostles, they're the ones that sent Paul, the one who taught you. But apparently, this subordinate of Peter hasn't been teaching you correctly. So in this letter, Paul defends himself, and he defends his message. First, Paul defends himself. He's an apostle, a sent one, sent by Jesus himself and God. Chapter 1, verse 1, just a reminder. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men or through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He defends his message. Why? Because he received it directly from Christ. Chapter 1, verse 12. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And even though he's an apostle, even though his message came to him from Christ, he made sure his gospel message was confirmed by the other apostles. Chapter 2, verse 2. He submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. And so now in our passage, he's showing that not only is he on par with the other apostles, he has the authority to rebuke them when they are in the wrong. But Paul also uses this story to set the stage for the rest of his argument that salvation comes by faith alone. He's warned the Galatians that they have been hearing from these Judaizers a different gospel, chapter 1, verse 6. A gospel contrary to what Paul preached, 1, verse 8. Contrary to what they received, chapter 1, verse 9. The gospel Paul taught them is the gospel of Christ, chapter 1, verse 7. It was given by Christ in chapter 1, verse 12, and it was confirmed by the pillars of the Jerusalem church in chapter 2, verse 9. And then Paul uses this dramatic story to confirm his authority and to begin in earnest his explanation and defense of the gospel. Paul shows us that faithfulness includes believing and defending sound doctrine and then living out that same doctrine. So if you're a math person, sound doctrine plus right practice equals faithfulness. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. Uh, You've given us your word, and we thank you for that. Your word is perfect. We need your spirit to illumine it uh, to us. And so we ask you for that. We ask ask, uh, that your word would dwell richly within us, that we would come to a knowledge and understanding, and that knowledge and understanding would produce fruit, that we would walk out your word in the way that that Paul is encouraging uh, Peter to walk out that word. And we know we fail 
in that. So we pray for understanding. We pray for a heart of love that would walk in truth and walk in grace. And we ask you for that, for your glory and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at this passage by asking a series of questions. And so we're going to be organized by three questions. First question is, what happened in this passage? What happened? The second question is, what should not happen? What shouldn't happen? What are we warned against? And the third question is, what should happen? How are we to live? How are we to change as a result of reading this passage? So what happened? What shouldn't happen? And then what should happen? So what happened? We're going to take a look at Peter first. And then we'll examine Paul's actions. And then for our analysis of both men under this first point, what happened, we're going to use three questions to help us understand what happened. So when we look at Peter, what did he do? And then why did he do it? And what was the result? And we get to Paul, we'll ask the same question. So what did Peter do? Why did he do it? And what was the result? Let's read again verses 11 through 13. But when Cephas, Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy." So what did Peter do? I mean, just the, the, ver- the verse starts just with that adversative but. Paul connects this incident to the passage before and even to the beginning of this letter. So even though Paul submitted his message to the Jerusalem pillars, even though Peter was an apostle, even though Peter was a leader among the apostles and a leader of the early church, Paul could rightly deliver an apostolic rebuke. Why? Because Peter was clearly in the wrong. And now this is a difficult passage to reconcile for those who have been taught that Peter was the first pope. It is not difficult for those of us who know we are all sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are all imperfect. When Cephas came to Antioch, this happened when Peter came to Antioch. So many scholars have speculated exactly when Galatians was written. Was it before that Jerusalem conference we talked about last week? In Acts 15, deciding if circumcision was required for the Gentile believers. Was it after that conference, but before Paul's second journey? Was it after Paul's second journey? And it's not that important to establish the exact time. But the most convincing evidence that the letter was written before the Acts 15 conference is that Paul nowhere specifically in this passage refers to the decision that circumcision was not required for Gentile believers. When this letter does provide a great occasion to share that information. However, if I was a recipient of this letter, I would read chapter 2, 11 through 14 as occurring after chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. And you could, you could explain the difference because in Jerusalem, the issue was circumcision. In Antioch, the issue is eating with Gentiles. So what we do know is that Peter came to Antioch before this letter to the Galatians was written. Cephas means stone. It was Peter's name before Christ changed it to large rock, Petros, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. The Antioch referred to is the Syrian Antioch, where followers of Christ were first called Christians. This is the home church of Barnabas and Paul. 
When Peter visited Antioch, he adopted the practice of eating with Gentiles. Now, this was a big deal to them. In Acts 10, God teaches Peter in uh, chapter 10, verse 43, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Whether Jew or Gentile, God told a Roman centurion, Cornelius, to send for Peter. God prepared Peter for this meeting by giving him a vision. In this vision, God commanded Peter to kill and eat animals that were considered unclean by the Jewish law. God commanded Peter to eat animals that were prohibited under the law. God told Peter that what God has cleansed is no longer unholy. Chapter 10, verse 15. God instructed Peter to go and meet Cornelius. In the presence of Cornelius and others, Peter said, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I shall not call any man unholy or unclean. Chapter 10, verse 28. Then Peter preached the good news to the Gentiles. And the Jewish people were amazed. Why? Because they saw the Holy Spirit confirm Peter's message when the Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles in the same way the Spirit was poured out on the Jews. The gospel is for the Gentiles. The gospel, the good news, is for the whole world. Obedience to the law is not required for salvation. It's not a necessary step of obedience after salvation. Acts 10 and 11 teaches us that Peter learned this lesson from God. And we're not in any doubt about what Peter received and what Peter believed when he was up in Antioch. So while Peter was in Antioch, he made it a practice to eat with all the believers in the church, both Jews and Gentiles. He was obviously and publicly not following all the Jewish dietary laws. But then what happened? Men from Jerusalem arrived. They're professing believers. They say they're believers. They're of Jewish origin. They're the same type of men Paul described at the Jerusalem Council in Galatians 2.4. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. These men were described in Acts 15.5 as strict Pharisees. They're associated with James, the brother of Jesus and a leader in the Jerusalem church, and they claimed James' authority, essentially trying to act as his representatives, even though we know that James himself disavowed them. Their message was given to us in Acts 15.1. And it says there, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, they stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to keep the law of Moses. They claimed to be of James. James repudiates him. Here's an excerpt from the letter that James sent to the churches where Paul ministered. It's from Acts 15, 24. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have confused you by their teaching, upsetting your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When these men arrived in Antioch, Peter withdrew from his usual practice of dining with Gentiles. So that's what Peter did. Why did Peter do that? 
the next verse, or the text tells us in verse 12, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Peter acted the way he did out of fear. Even though he heard directly from God on this issue in Acts 10 and 11, and we know from Acts 10 and 11 what Peter was taught and what he believed, we know from this passage and his later testimony in his letters that he continued to believe that keeping of the Old Testament law had nothing to do with salvation. So why did he act differently from that belief now? I mean, out of fear. Why did he fear these men? I mean, we don't, we don't know. They didn't carry the same authority that Jewish Pharisees would carry. But he feared them nonetheless. He was charged by Paul with hypocrisy. He was acting in a way that was not in accordance with what he truly believed. He was insincere. He changed his behavior, not because he changed what he believed, but because he feared other men. Hypocrisy is not acting in a way that is not in accord with your feelings. I mean, there'll be some day this week that I'm going to eat a salad when I feel like eating a cheeseburger. And it's not hypocritical because not acting in accord with your feelings is not hypocrisy. It is acting in a way that is not what you believe or what you proclaim. I mean, we do things we do not feel like doing all the time. That does not make us hypocrites. When we act against our values or we act against our beliefs, then we can be charged with hypocrisy. Peter did not change his beliefs, but he did change his behavior in a way that indicated the opposite of what he professed. And what was the result? We saw what happened. We saw why Peter did what he did. What was the result? The result that was when Peter acted hypocritically, when he stopped eating with the Gentiles, let me read, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So carried away, literally yielded to or submitted to the hypocrisy of Peter. Look at how serious this is. The Antioch church is made up of Jewish and Gentile Christians. Peter comes to Antioch and everything's fine. He eats with everyone. He participates in the unity of the church. Then these other men arrive who somehow inspire fear in Peter. And Peter stops eating with the Gentiles. And then what? Do one or two Jews go along with him? Does a small group of Jewish believers join in the hypocrisy? No, it says the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. The rest of the Jews, the remainder of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is literally acting under, like an actor who plays a role or someone who speaks from behind a mask. Peter's presenting an image that is not the real Peter. And even Barnabas was carried away. Barnabas was conforming himself to the image Peter presented. He passively submitted and yielded to this hypocrisy. And now this church in Antioch has been fractured, not by false teaching, but by the hypocritical actions of a hypocritical leader. Now let's continue to see what's happened by examining Paul. So what did Paul do? Why did he do it? And what was the result? Paul opposed Peter to his face, verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face. Paul did not rebuke him in private. He didn't start a church discipline process by bringing one man with him to rebuke Peter. 
He opposed him publicly. This word oppose means to stand against. It's the opposite of consenting to or agreeing with. Paul stood up in the presence of all, in the presence of everyone, and asked a simple yet vitally important question. Verse 14, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? I mean, how do you answer a question like that? I mean, there's no good answer. There's no good answer from Peter. Why? He stood condemned. He was publicly condemned by his own actions and his own conscience, and it was evident to all. Peter believed one thing, and he acted on that belief most of the time. But in this case, out of fear of some other men, he acted in a way that was at odds with what he truly believed. And because he was a leader, his actions led other men astray. In this case, he led the rest of the Jews astray. Paul later instructed Timothy in how to handle a sinning elder. 1 Timothy 5.20 says, or 19 and 20, Do not accept an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Peter acted hypocritically, and Paul opposed him to his face by asking a question that exposed his sin to everyone. So why did Paul do what he did? Why did he oppose Peter? In verse 11, we read Paul opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Luke goes on to add in verse 14, But when I saw that he was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, In the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So why did Paul oppose Peter to his face? And the answer is simple. Paul acted in accordance with the same principles that Peter espoused and acted upon when not in fear of those Pharisaic Judaizers. The thing at stake was the sound doctrine of the church. Here's how Martin Luther described this situation in his commentary. He hath here no trifling matter in hand, but the chiefest article of all Christian doctrine. For what is Peter? What is Paul? What is an angel from heaven? What are all the other creatures to the article of justification? Which if we know, then are we in the clear light. But if we be ignorant thereof, then are we in most miserable darkness. So what's at stake here? In this chapter alone, chapter 2 of Galatians, it's twice called the truth of the gospel in verses 5 and 14. That was the issue in Jerusalem with circumcision. It's the issue in Antioch with following dietary laws and not eating with Gentiles. Paul opposed Peter because Peter was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Straightforward, again, means to walk uprightly, to walk that straight path. The opposite, again, is to pervert or transgress. Peter was not walking straight according to the truth of the gospel. He deviated from the path. He ignored the true path's markers, and he walked a different course. So what is the truth of the gospel? And it's an important question, and it requires an answer. And it's the good news that sinners, like all of us, men and women 
we're all guilty and deservedly under the judgment of God, but we can be forgiven by pure grace. Grace, just that unearned favor we receive from God when we trust in Jesus and his death for our sins. And God's favor isn't earned by any work that we've performed. This is the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. Paul explained it this way in verse 16 of chapter 2. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. This doctrine is what is at stake here, and this is why Paul opposed Peter. Paul did not, and we should not tolerate any deviation whatsoever from this gospel truth. What did he say in the previous chapters, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9? But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he's to be accursed. Paul is serious about the truth of the, of the gospel. You might be led to ask, but how did Peter compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? This word compel means to constrain or to command. Peter, by virtue of his position, by virtue of his apostolic authority, had such an influence that his actions compelled others to follow suit. His actions commanded compliance in a moral sense. His actions could not have continued without all the others complying with him. A leader by his actions leads. Peter's hypocrisy couldn't stand alone. It required the participation of others. It would be an amazingly strong Christian who could stand at odds on a point of doctrine with the apostle Peter. If God justifies both Jews and Gentiles through simple faith in Christ crucified, there's no difference between them in Christ. So who are we to withhold fellowship from a believer unless they're circumcised or unless they comply with dietary laws that have nothing to do with their salvation? If God accepts someone, on what basis do we reject fellowship with them? God has reconciled them to himself. Why can we not have fellowship with them? Peter's actions attacked the truth of the gospel. He was not straightforward about that truth. Paul was compelled to impose him for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, and for Peter's sake. So what was the result? We're not told in this passage, but we do know that Peter returned to walking according to the truth of the gospel. He defended the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone at the Jerusalem Council. He wrote of salvation by grace through faith in Christ in his letters, and he eventually died for that doctrine, as foretold by Jesus in John 21, 19. This doctrine was settled by the apostles, including Paul, who taught this doctrine and defended it against those who sought to add requirements to the free gift of salvation. So that is what happened in this passage. So what can't happen? What are we warned against? What are the warnings that we see for us in this passage? And I just want to highlight three. Peter was out of step with the truth of the gospel. How do we avoid this? What can lead us 
What can lead us to compromise the truth of the gospel? First, fear of man can prevent you from walking in that gospel path. Can prevent you from looking for those signs, those, those green flashes on the trees. Fear can prevent you from walking in the gospel path. Believers, you are not to fear man. The gospel has set you free. You're free from bondage to sin. You're free from bondage to fear. There's nothing a man can do on this earth that can pull you from the hand of your heavenly father. If you are a believer, you have been saved by grace through faith. Your future is secure. The straightforward path of the gospel does not have room for fear. You do not need to fear. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. So if you're fearful of what others think, what do you need? You need the gospel. If you're fearful of the consequences of walking out your faith, drink deeply of gospel truth. If you're fearful of death and disease, drink deeply of the gospel. If you believed, if you've repented of your unbelief and you've turned away from that and instead turned in faith to trust only in Christ for your salvation, God has saved you. He is on your side. He's your rock, your stronghold, your help in time of trouble, your provider, your father. Church, do not fear. Listen to Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring charges against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we're killed all the day long. We were, we were regarded the sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So don't fear, and especially don't fear men. God sent Paul to Peter to tell him not to fear men. God gave us his word in this letter to instruct us not to fear men. What does God often tell his people? Be strong. Take courage. Why? Because the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Second, the second thing to avoid, the second thing this passage teaches us to avoid, hypocrisy. We are to be straightforward about the truth of the gospel. You can say with your mouth that you believe the gospel and have your actions say the opposite. Fear led Peter to hypocrisy. Peter was not secure about his place with God. He feared men instead of obeying God. John Piper says this, 
Insecurity, it's inconsistent with the gospel. When you feel insecure or frightened and are tempted to put up a front and avoid taking a stand for what you believe is right, the battle you are fighting is a battle to believe the gospel. The gospel tells us that the death of Christ assures us of God's love. And so it gives deep root and stability and security to our lives. But more than that, the sheer beauty and power of Christ's resolve to suffer for me instead of putting up a front to save his skin shames me in my fear of man and my inclination to play the hypocrite in order to avoid suffering. So church, stand strong in your convictions. Do not fear and don't let fear cause you to be a hypocrite. And then third, remember legalism and works to be acceptable to God are not part of our gospel path. That is not the marker that we're looking for to stay straightforward according to the truth of the gospel. Works don't save. In fact, they never have. We walk in good works now after salvation. Why? Because good works are straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I've been saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, the straightforward result of that salvation is to do what my Father saved me to do, to live without fear of man, to walk sincerely in accordance to the truth of the gospel, and not to do anything that adds a single thing to the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. So those are our three warnings. One, don't fear man, fear God instead. Two, don't be a hypocrite. Hold your convictions, especially your convictions about the free gift of salvation. Live those convictions out. And then three, do not nullify the grace of God by adding legal requirements to achieve salvation. Let your actions straightforwardly reflect your convictions. That was what should not happen. What should happen? We've looked at the negatives, the warnings. What are we called to do? What is the positive instruction? And it's simple. It really is. Church, just be straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Scripture describes this a few different ways, and I'm just going to give you some examples, and you can probably think of others. Hebrews 12, verse 13, And make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is impaired may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. So make straight paths for your feet. Be one who's not wandering in the woods looking for your, your green flag. Make those straight paths. Mark them well. Stay in them. Read the word. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Ask God for help in this. Let his word illumine your path. You don't have to walk in darkness. God has given you his word. He's given you his spirit. Ephesians 4, verse 1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So consistently walk according to what the Lord has called you to do. You are no longer slaves of sin. So walk like children of the Lord God. Walk in Christ. And you know what? You don't have to do it alone. God has sent his spirit to indwell you. You have help. You are never alone. 
You've been baptized into the church, the bride of Christ. Christ helps you. Your brothers and sisters have each been supernaturally gifted to serve you as you have been gifted to serve them. Do not neglect that gift. Walk in the word. Walk in the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 12 says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard about it, have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all perseverance and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You are called to walk straightforwardly, and you've been strengthened to do it, and it's not impossible for believers. In fact, it's hypocritical for us not to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. You have been strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. There's other passages, and I can go on, but that's enough. Christians, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, walk with the Lord. If you haven't believed, if you haven't received that grace, now is the time to turn away from that unbelief, from that path of unbelief. Turn to trusting in Christ. Now is the time to receive that free gift of salvation. Give up thinking that you're good enough. You're not. Give up thinking you can make yourself acceptable to God. You cannot. The only way to be free from sin and free from fear is to be a servant of God and believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way to salvation. And so I ask you, if you haven't believed, turn away from your sin. Turn away from your unbelief. Turn in faith to Jesus Christ and accept that. And when you do, come tell me after the service. Come tell one of the other pastors. Tell any member of this church so that we can help you and we can welcome you into receiving the gift that we've received and then seeking to walk that out together straightforwardly in accordance with the truth of the gospel. So let's pray.